listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. been in Daniel so far. We started several weeks ago. We kind of started in Jeremiah to give us a a precursor to the book of Daniel. And we've seen in chapter one, we see Daniel uh, and actually thousands of uh, Israelites are, they become POWs, prisoners of war. They become exiles here in Babylon. In chapter two, we started a couple of weeks ago and King Nebuchadnezzar, everybody say Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to call him King Neb, all right? Keep it easy for us. King Neb, he has a dream, and he's very disturbed about it. Last week we saw where we have the magicians and the sorcerers, and they're like, King Neb, we don't know what your dream means. We can't figure it out. And so Daniel, who is there with his uh, three friends, we know them most often as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you are a VeggieTales fan, anybody know what the VeggieTales names are? There we go. Oh, and you're too old to know that. But it's Rag, Shack, and Benny. Uh, so if you have kids, uh, you know about the VeggieTale names. So maybe that's a more literal translation of, of the language. I don't know. I haven't looked that far into it. But we, we have him and his three friends. And Daniel says, hey, give me just a few minutes. I think I can find an interpretation for you. And so we see Daniel relying on the Spirit of God for a couple of reasons. One, to proclaim the mysteries of God to King Neb and to Babylon. Secondly, to save his life. Because Neb had threatened to kill all of the sorcerers, magicians, all of the diviners there in the nation, if they could not, one, tell him his dream, and then secondly, give him the interpretation of that dream. So we pick up here today at the end of Daniel chapter 2. And maybe if, if you've been here with us through Daniel, you're thinking, and I've, I've talked to folks, uh, had a conversation, several conversations, and you probably have these as well with folks just this past week, but it's like, man, things are changing the, the culture is moving from what used to feel a little more like everything was godly. And maybe even in your life, you're like, yeah, it, it felt a little more godly to where everything today feels absolutely godless. Anybody feel that? And it's like, yeah, we look back, maybe it wasn't, you know, perfectly godly and it wasn't like everything was strictly from the scriptures, but we are moving in this direction to where The godless is not just more places, but it's also more celebrated wherever we are. So maybe you feel that tension. And like Daniel, like, man, I was back here in the homeland. Everything was really good. We were the people of God in the nation of God. This is the land that God had given us and he had promised us this. And now we are over here in godless Babylon. And it's like, man, how do we live? Here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. And this will be on the screen several times. But I want you to know this. We are to love and serve within the fading kingdom where we are today, where Daniel and his friends were then. We are to love and serve within the fading kingdom as we are waiting for the final kingdom. There's a story of a man. His name was Larry Walters, and this happened several years ago. But Larry Walters was just a normal guy. He had been in the military. He retired, had just a a variety of jobs. Well, one day, Larry Walters, he decided um, that he was tired of sitting in his neighborhood, just kind of going on as things always were. And so he went to an army surplus store, and he bought 45 weather balloons. He went to a, a local party supply store, and he bought a bunch of helium tanks. He took those weather balloons, 
and filled them with helium. Then he tied them to a lawn chair that was in the back of his Jeep truck. Now his, his lawn chair was tethered down to his truck. He went out in this field. He had some friends join him. He had these weather balloons way up here filled with helium. His goal, as you can imagine, was to see how high he could go, see how far he could go. He just thought it'd be fun, just kind of a fun experiment. And you're like, yeah, I've always wanted to do that. You know, you see the movies or especially cartoons, what was the cartoon up? And you have all those balloons, you know, going. This was real life experiment. Larry Walters was one of the first guys to ever do this. So his plan was, well, the balloons are going to slowly lift him up, slowly rise, kind of if you let go of a uh, helium-filled balloon, it slowly goes up. So he took a few things with him. First, he took a CB radio, and that way he could be in communication with those on the ground. Secondly, he took a BB gun. So if he got too high or when he was ready to come down, he would just begin shooting balloons, and he would slowly just descend wherever he was hoping to descend. You're like, <laughs> this, can't, this, this can't be. He took a third thing with him, and that was a six-pack of beer, just because it was going to make the ride a little more enjoyable, I suppose. So he gets in his lawn chair. True story. He gets in his lawn chair. He tells his friends, okay, here we go. Untie me from the back of my Jeep truck. As soon as they untie him, boom, he shoots up like a rocket into the air. And within a minute, he's, up, he's thousands of feet up into the air. Well, he starts freaking out, obviously. Maybe that's why he brought the variety of things that he brought on his little trip uh, to calm his nerves a bit. So he takes out his gun and starts shooting the weather balloons. Well, it doesn't really help. He begins flying, and he was in California, go figure. He begins flying into, into airspace. Well, the military gets involved. They finally bring him down. He finally lands this lawn chair uh, there uh, somewhere in this field. Well, he gets fined. He has to pay thousands of dollars worth of fines. And here's what he said. I, I, want, I want to get this right. After he was interviewed uh, by a local news station later, he survived. He went on to, um, I don't know what he did after that. It doesn't matter because that was the best part of his life. Here's what he told the newscaster. He said, I just got tired of just sitting around. <laughs> it, so he decided to fly a lawn chair into, you know, the stratosphere. Is anybody there? You just get tired of just sitting around? You do. Yeah, you're like, man. And sometimes we show up here on Sundays and we discuss these things with our life groups and with our DNA groups and we hear podcasts and we hear preachers and we read books and, it's, and we have this, this struggle where we know that we're in the midst of this godless society and week in, week out, we're challenged to make a difference for the kingdom. And so often we're just like, and I'm, I'm here with you. You're like, yeah, but you just talked about giving and that's what we're paying you to do. I get it. I, I get it. But sometimes it's like, what am I doing for the sake of the kingdom? And sometimes it's, man, I'm just tired of just sitting around and I don't know how to live for the kingdom of God. I know that I'm supposed to, but how do I use every opportunity for the sake of God's glory so that the kingdom of God can go forward? And maybe if you look back at this past week, you're like, yeah, I, I don't know where my opportunities were, but I know this, I am just tired of just sitting around. Anybody there? And you think about, there's so much opportunity in front of us. And again, if you're like me, every morning you wake up and you're like, man, I'm one day closer to death. I can feel it. I can literally feel it in my bones. I can feel it in my feet. I can see it on my face. So how are we to live every single day, making the most with the opportunities that we have for the kingdom of God? 
And that's what I think the book of Daniel is about. We're going to jump in right here, beginning in verse number 31. But before we do, repeat these words from Psalm 119 after me. Open my eyes that I might receive your wonderful word to me. Amen. So even in the middle of our nine to five jobs, when we think that they're mostly boring or you're like, ah, I, don't, I don't have time for the kingdom of God. Here's what I want us to see as we walk through the book of Daniel. The first one, verse, verse 31, we begin here with this section. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Thank you, Caleb, for just for reading that. If you're not sure who Caleb is, one of our pastors, he was the one up here reading, uh, reading the passage and praying for us. So uh, we see this in these first four verses. We see the dream. The dream is right here. Here's what I want you to notice is that as the splendor decreases, the hardness increases. So the statue begins at the top and to the bottom, and it goes from gold to iron with a mixture of clay. So we see the splendor from gold to iron decreasing, but the hardness increases. We see here uh, the dream, verse number 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Now, remember back in, at the beginning of chapter 2, Neb was scared to death, couldn't sleep, freaking out, full of anxiety and stress and fear. Well, the image to him was frightening. We see here one of the reasons why it was. We keep going. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, notice verses 34 and 35 are crucial. We're going to come back to these in just a moment. A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Just a little, just a little foreshadowing. Uh, all of the stones that were used to build the temple of God could not be hewn by human hands. They had to be found the way they were. So that's just for free. That's not part of the sermon, but that's for free. Verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all of them all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. They became like dust and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became what? A great mountain. And what did that mountain do? It grew and it filled the whole earth. So there we have the dream. Now, secondly, we have the statue. So let's walk through and we see the statue and Daniel breaks this down for us. He says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king of its interpretation. As we look at this, here's what I want you to be careful of. Be careful of landing on passages like this really dogmatically and saying, well, this must be what it means. Because there are, we don't know exactly how this is, if these exactly mean these nation states. We, we don't know for sure if it's saying immediately this is going to happen or in the future. In the scriptures, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So don't get hung up on interpretations like this. But from this passage, we can infer these. Here's what the, here's what the statue means. And this is from the vast majority of commentators and theologians. So this is not some wacko Michael Powell theory. Here's what I think the statue might mean. If you look up anybody, they're going to say, we're not exactly sure what we think is this. So we're going to land there. Everybody good with that? All right, we're not going to build any theologies on the statue. Everybody nod your head yes? All right, you all agreed. So, and we have a hidden camera right up here. I'm just kidding, we don't. We're not watching you. But we see a few things here. First, verse 37 you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Who gave him the kingdom? The who? The God of heaven. Don't miss that. 
He's given them the power, the might, and the glory, and unto whose hand he is given. Wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. You are the head of gold. He's saying here, Babylon is, this, is the head of gold here. So this is the nation of Babylon. When King Neb came into power, he, we already said King Neb was a powerful king. But understand, around the city of Babylon, he built a wall that was 56 miles long. That's a long way. That's from here to a long way away from here. That's how long this, this wall was. I didn't plan on saying anything about 56 miles before I was standing here right now today. So I didn't look up to see how far 56 miles away. But if anybody knows a city that's 56 miles away, that's how far it is, a long way. Not only was it, we think about a wall, we're like, hey, let's build a wall, you know. Uh, but this wall was 80 feet thick, 80 feet. And it was 300 feet high. Now that's a wall. The nation of Babylon was known for its vast amount of gold. In the nation of Babylon, there was actually, at the time, historians would say they, there was so much gold in Babylon, people would come and see how much gold was in Babylon. They're like, we didn't even realize this much gold existed in the world. In Babylon, they had street signs made out of gold. There were statues everywhere made of gold. There were even steps in some places, staircases made of gold. It was beautiful. So if you're Neb listening to the beginning of this interpretation, you're like, all right, all right, I like it. Gold, good. Babylon, good. Secondly, but then we see verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Inferior, what's inferior to gold? Silver. So that's where we see the second one. And this after Babylon, we know from history, and we'll actually see this later on in the book of Daniel, but this is Medo-Persia. Everybody say Medo-Persia. So this is the nation they came after Babylon. And this nation, uh, they reigned for about 200 years. This is the chest and the arms made of silver. Look at the second half of verse number 39. And after you, a third kingdom of bronze. The Bronze Age, this is the nation of Greece. And, this, and Greece reigned for about 185 years. So we see the chest, the arms made, uh, or the chest and the, and the stomach and the thighs made of bronze. Verse number 40. And there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. This fourth kingdom was Rome. Now we see here he talks about toes and there's 10 toes and it was flipping in 10 ways. We're not going to get all into that, not at least in this chapter, maybe later on in Daniel. I think chapter seven, we'll get into maybe what all those things mean. And then we'll build some crazy theologies on that. And I'll grow my hair out and I'll uh, have a wig and uh, some flannel graph and we'll start a, uh, never mind. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, but right here, all we need to know is this, a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. And this is Rome. Notice what he says. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. We said we moved downward. We decreased in splendor from gold to iron, but we're increasing in hardness. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all things. Verse 41. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. Now Rome ruled for a long time, from about 150 B.C., all the way until about the 15th century. And Rome was not just one solid nation state, but it divided east and west. So here it's saying, here's what's going to happen. That's why we can infer from this, it's talking about Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece and Rome. He says this, just as the, some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. 
but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So we have the statue. Everybody good with that? Now we get to verse number 44. This is where things get interesting. And in the days of those kings, and by the way, I think the days of those kings, he's talking there because it's like, man, what are the days of those kings? He's talking about the kings of the past. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about future kings. I think there he's talking about the days of the kings. He's talking about the reign of the Roman Empire. During the Roman Empire's reign, 150 BC, all the way till the 14th, 15th century. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven, who's that? The God of heaven, who's in control? What's this passage about? The sovereignty of the God of heaven. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Verse 45, he's saying, remember back in verses 34 and 35? Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Everybody got shattered. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Here's what Daniel is saying to King Neb. He's saying your dream depicts the plan of God for the world. Here's what's even more interesting, important, vital for us to know. In a passage that talks about the sovereignty of God, we must not pass over the fact that this passage also talks about the salvation of God. Because in the midst of this dream, the reason he has the stone there sent from God for a kingdom that's never going to fade, Daniel is saying the stone is a declaration of God's salvation. Neb, Babylon, just know that God's kingdom is going to last forever and salvation is coming. Now, prior to Daniel, whenever a stone was referenced, especially in the Old Testament, it referred to one who was going to come from the tribe of Judah. My guess, by the way, is Neb may have known this because they had ancient writings. The first one we see is actually, this will be up on the screen. You don't have to go there. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 24, it says, yet his bow, talking about the house of Jacob, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. This is in parentheses, but this is there in the Hebrew text. This is in the scriptures. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. He's talking there. The stone of Israel is going to come from the house of Judah, from the house of Jacob. Again, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. And he, talking about Christ, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, the north and the south, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken they shall be snared and taken. So this is looking forward to Christ. Here's what Christ says in Luke chapter 20. He says, but he looked at them. This is Jesus speaking. What then is this that is written? The stone, and this is from Psalm chapter 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. But notice, friends, what does Christ call himself? He says, I'm the rock of salvation. We just sang this, rock of ages. You were cleft for me. When Jesus Christ came the first time, he came not to judge, but to save. Jesus Christ is certainly, we saw it there in Genesis 49. We saw it in Isaiah 8. Jesus Christ is the rock of salvation. But listen, friend, if you reject him, he will crush you. His words, not mine. If you reject Jesus Christ, he will crush you. 
We see the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, and saying, this is Christ talking, some of his very first words there in the gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Literally, the kingdom of God is here. So repent and believe in the gospel. That's the beginning of Christ's ministry. What he's saying is, my life, my crucifixion, my death, my burial, my resurrection, my ascension, all of that points to the kingdom of God. The stone is here. The kingdom of God has started. It is being initiated. So when we see the stone here in Daniel chapter 2, it is pointing to both the first coming of Christ when he came 2,000 years ago, but get this, it's also pointing to the second coming of Christ because the kingdom is growing. And Jesus Christ is coming again. The kingdom has been started, but it has not been completed. It's been culminated, but it has not been consummated. And that's good news for us. So we're here standing in this already not yet. Notice, as we move from what's valuable at the top down to the feet, notice what crushes the entire statue. Something that's even least valuable. is is less valuable than iron. It's certainly less valuable than bronze or silver or gold. What had humble beginnings came and crushed the statue. It became a mountain, and then it filled the entire world, and it's going to have final dominance. Friend, listen, every single nation that has ever existed or will ever exist is going to be crushed by the kingdom of God. He is going to reign eternally and forever. God bless America, yes and amen, but she's going to get the stone also, and that's okay. That's actually good news for us. Christian, there is no after you. What did Daniel tell King Neb? He said, after you is coming another kingdom. But for you, Christian, there is no after you. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ has crushed every other rival kingdom, and he will reign forevermore. He is the one who is going to reign. So I would plead with you this morning. As we look at these passages, to build your life, your time, your finances, your priorities, build your life on the cornerstone or else your life is going to crumble. Here's what King Neb realized. And and my prayer for us this week, my prayer for you has been that we would not be in the same position as King Neb when we see him here. Neb realized he had to come to grips face to face with the fact that when God deals with you, you are not a big deal. When God deals with you, you are not a big deal. That's the meaning of the stone. It's the kingdom of God. The last thing we see here in this passage, beginning in verse number 46, we see here the, the promotion, the promotion of Daniel and his friends. And here's what I want us to see as we, as we read through this, is that a clear, bold gospel witness won't always put us in a bad place in the world. Sometimes we think, oh, man, I, I, I can't share my faith. I can't mention this. I can't post this. I can't talk about this. Or else I'm going to, maybe so, maybe so, but not always. Let's not use that as an excuse. We see Daniel in one of the most pagan empires in all of human history. And what happens to him? He gets promoted. Then King Neb fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. 
I think something probably happens between verses 46 and 47 that we don't see here. Because in verse 46, Neb worships Daniel. Verse 47, notice who Neb worships. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God. So he went from worshiping Daniel. I think probably in there, Daniel was like, hey, bro, I've already told you in this chapter, it ain't me. It's the God of heaven. Stop. Look, it's him, not me. Because in verse 40, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king, uh, the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. This vision helped Daniel. It kept him alive. It also humbled King Neb. I think if you, were, if you put your place in the readership of who would have first read Daniel, consider the Israelite people. Maybe they're still there in Babylon and they're watching these things happen. Maybe they're reading it some uh, years later. But I want us to, I think they would have taken this away is that failure, your failure, we'll make it personal for us, your failure is not final. Your failure is not final. Why are the people of Israel exiles? Because they were idolatrous. Because they had turned their back on the one true God. And what does God say throughout this dream, through this interpretation, even here in this passage? God says, I still got you. My kingdom is coming. Your failure is not final. And we can look at ourselves and say, man, that was my shoe, by the way. <laughs> like the first three rows heard that, they went, oh, okay, I'll do it. I can't do it again, dog. It was my shoe, I promise. <laughs> On the Bible. I knew I shouldn't have worn these shoes today. Uh, oh, man, I feel better, though. Uh, I'm just kidding. If you look back, if you look ahead, look at chapter three with me. <laughs> look at the first verse. End of chapter two, Neb worships God. Chapter three, verse one, Neb made an image of gold whose height was 60 for people to worship him. He gathers everyone in the nation to come and worship him. We're like, King Neb. <laughs> oh man, you bozo, what's wrong with you? Because we, the people of God, we would never worship you and then turn our backs on you for idols. Interesting. Interesting analysis there, Israelites, who were in exile for doing exactly just that. The message to King Neb is one of salvation. The message to the readers, the Israelites, is one of salvation. Your failure is not final. But also recognize this. King Neb turns for a second to God. He worships God. I don't know how legit it was. But what about our lives? This morning we can stand and sing and we can celebrate. Yeah, he's rock of ages. But what happens this week when we get into a fight with our wives? What happens this week when we are by ourselves and we have our cell phones and nothing else and nobody's going to know? What about this week when we're lonely? What are we going to run to for hope? What about this week when, I mean, you're just sad or you're stressed? What are you going to run to to soothe you in that moment? Is it going to be the same truth that you've sung here this morning? Like, man, I hope so. What about this past week? But we're so back and forth. We're so wishy-washy on our faith. Just like King Neb right here. 
can I parallel our lives with Neb for a second? Friend, you can revere Jesus Christ in your mind, but never receive him in your heart. You can revere Christ in your mind, but never receive him in your heart. And I would plead with you that your standing before God would not be simply based on a decision way back when, but it would be based on your discipleship. The fact that you are following Christ day in and day out with everything that you have. Don't be like Neb in this passage. Don't be like the Israelites in this passage. Be like Daniel. Man, be bold. Be strong in your faith. Be like Christ, who is faithful through trial in the face of disaster, scorn, and pain. He was faithful to the end. So we already saw this. I want to extrapolate this a little bit more. But we are to love and serve those within the fading kingdom as we are waiting on the final kingdom. Now, a few months ago, we went through the book of Luke. And we talked about what, what life in the kingdom looks like. And then back in August, we did this series called In McDonough As It Is In Heaven. And so we've spent really the past almost year and a half just looking at what life in the kingdom looks like. Last week we said uh, there are a couple of options of ways to live. We can, uh, we can live in altercation. We can assimilate. We can separate. But the very last one that we said there, the fourth one, we should live a life of transformation. And so this is where I said at the beginning, this is... Sometimes we, get, we, get, we think, man, I don't know how to live in the world, my nine to five. I'm not in full-time vocational ministry. So what is my life supposed to look like? Here's how you can live a transformed life. Here's, here's what I think we learned from Daniel. As we are living, as you are living in this fading kingdom, looking forward to a final kingdom. The first thing that we see here, the first truth that I think that we can walk away with, here's how we can live a transformed identity. We notice that Daniel never compromises his beliefs but he distinguishes between sinful things and offensive things. Now, this is tough for some of us, especially some black and white people, you know, and that's also most of my life. Is it right or is it wrong? Well, I want to stay away from the, stay away from the sin. But notice, Daniel is okay with a name change. He doesn't protest it. He's okay with becoming a eunuch. I mean, not okay. I said, I won't say okay. He goes through with it. <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose who's going to sign? Nobody's going to sign up for that. But he doesn't protest it. He goes through with that. He, he protests the food because he's like, I got to protest something. But, but notice what he does. He doesn't protest going in and learning about astrology or paganism or these satanic practices. He goes in and he learns these things to the point where he is put in charge of these lessons. Daniel's attitude was, you know what? The scripture forbids me to practice these things, to engage in these things, but it never says not to learn these things. He says, it's offensive to me to learn these things. It's offensive to me to have a name change. It's offensive to me to become a eunuch, but it's not necessarily a sinful thing. So he goes through with those. I don't think he was sitting in the back of the Babylonian education system, uh, like making paper airplanes and throwing them at the teacher or heckling somebody. He went there with the attitude of, I'm going to learn. That's why I am here. He distinguished between what is sinful and what, and what is offensive. Here's what I tell my kids often. Um, I, one of my kids came home this week and he said, he said, Mom, can you email my teacher and tell, tell her to tell all the kids in my class to stop cussing? Which I signed up for a Christian school. Like I thought we were all Christians, you know. 
Some of you are like, yeah, I sent my kids to Christian school too. I went to Christian school. And I said, I said, buddy, sinners are going to act like sinners. Unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers. It's not a surprise. I didn't pull them out of the school. I didn't say, close your ears, la, 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 la. I didn't say every time they said, smack them in the mouth. No. But don't engage with that. Don't participate in the sin. Be offended. Be very offended. But still engage with the soul. The second thing that we see is that many of the people that God uses most greatly are marketplace leaders, not church leaders. I sat with a brother this, this week um, over breakfast, and, and he said, man, I'm just struggling with going into work. He said, I want to make a difference for the sake of the kingdom of God, and I struggle with going to work and, and participating in that. I said, I said, bro, look at Daniel. I said, what was his job? Was he a preacher? No. When we look at the Old Testament, Abraham, he was a farmer. Nehemiah was uh, a commercial real estate developer. Esther, she was a civil advocate. Daniel here is a government employee, Rahab, she was a working girl. New Testament, Cornelius was in the military. You know, Paul made tents. Luke was a doctor. Jesus was either a carpenter or a stonemason, however you want to interpret those, those passages. None of them are in full-time vocational ministry. None of them are. So as I look at this passage, I want for us, I want to help, not hype. And so at the end of the sermon, it's not going to be like, yeah, let's go. We're going into work tomorrow. And then by the time you get to work tomorrow, you're like, what happened to that hype? I, I want to help. Here's why. Because as we look at Daniel, it's not primarily about how to be a better prophet or a better missionary or a better preacher or a better seminary student. It's how to bring the kingdom of God to bear wherever you are, in the place that you work, in the place that you live, with your boss, with your coworkers, with your family, with your spouse, with your kids, in your neighborhood. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, which I think parallels uh, Daniel a lot, if you look at the book of Acts, do you know how many miracles there are in the book of Acts? Look, if somebody asked you a number, just say 7, 12, or 40, okay? Uh, so there are 40 miracles in the book of Acts. Guess how many of those miracles happen in the church, like in a gathered body of believers? Everybody hold up your finger. One. 39 miracles in the book of Acts happen somewhere else. It's not during a church service that miracles are happening. South Point, we need lawyers and artists and IT nerds, and we need plumbers and electricians and managers and truck drivers. We need all of these folks who are bringing the kingdom of God to bear wherever you are. We need each and every one of you. This is what the book of Daniel is about, to bring love and service and honor, not to your boss, but to the one who has placed your boss over you. The king of kings, the boss of bosses. That's the one that we worship. That's the one that we work for. That's the one that we serve. Lastly, some of you have been gifted by God to build wealth. So leverage it for the kingdom of God. Those in my generation, a lot of times we think that wealth and money is bad and we're like, oh man, let's, let's, let's spread that wealth out. Why can't I have that, what that guy has? Can I tell you something? The, the scripture never says that wealth is bad. Where scripture divides uh, our worldview on money, where it makes the distinction is between being greedy and being generous. Between being greedy and being generous. We're like, oh yeah, but uh, money is the root of all evil. Except for the fact that it's not. The love of money is the root of all evil. 
And I would plead with you, the kingdom of God needs resources. And the Lord God, Yahweh, is the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. All resources are his. And he has gifted so many of us to make money. And I would encourage you, I would implore you, go, kill it at your job. Make as much money as you possibly can and then be generous with the resources that you have so that we can support guys like Mark Lewis, who we heard from last, last Sunday night, so that we can support missionaries in Africa, so that we can support guys like Chris Brown down in Locust Grove investing in the next generation of disciples of Jesus. Make money, kill it. I mean, we need those resources. Help us advance the kingdom. The stone has come. It has arrived. All the kingdoms around us are being broken down. That's the kingdom of God. It is expanding. And I would ask you to jump on board with that. I've said this twice already. If you get nothing else out of it, we are to love and serve within the fading kingdom as we are waiting for the final kingdom. Here's the question that I have for you this morning. I want you to write the answer to this question down. It's not up on the screen. But I want you to answer this question. What are you desperate for? What are you desperate for? I'm gonna give you a little bit of time, maybe 20, 30 seconds. But this morning, if I said, you can have whatever it is, served up on a platter, here, take this. You're like, man, that's what I, that's what I want more than anything else. I'm not gonna ask you for your answer. I'm not gonna ask you to email me whatever you wrote down. This is between you and, you and God. But what are you desperate for? Maybe a better way of answering that is, what is your foundation? Is it a, a dazzling self? Is it security, comfort, significance, direction, maybe a freedom of, uh, a freedom of pain or poverty? Maybe is it for a spouse or for a reconciliation with your spouse? What are you desperate for? As I was thinking through this uh, this morning, I thought, what am I desperate for? <clears throat> I looked over the past week of my life and I thought, man, the one thing that I have craved more than anything else day in and day out is the approval of other people. If I had the approval of others, my life would be complete. I would be satisfied. And can I tell you something, friend? If you are building your kingdom for yourself, the kingdom of God is going to crush that kingdom. My kingdom of approval, and probably I've got all y'all's names on one of the stones. I'm like, if I can get the approval of her and of her and of him, and if, I'm gonna, man, look at this beautiful kingdom of approval I have, and I can walk in and sit on my throne of approval and just be approved. <laughs> like, this is awesome. But eventually the kingdom of God is going to crush that kingdom. Anything that is not built on the foundation of Jesus Christ is going to be knocked down. And can I tell you something? That is simply the beginning of the good news. That's really good news for all, you're like, well, I don't understand how that's, that's really good news. Here's why it's good news. It's because your greatest need is not for approval or for comfort or for success or for whatever you thought of or wrote down just now. Your greatest need is for the presence of God. It's for the presence of God to be made known here, for you to be able to experience that 
and to be able to exude that and to reflect the presence of Jesus Christ. That is your greatest need this morning. And God does not want you just to sit back and admire his presence, to look at it, but he wants you to experience a presence and a spirit-filled life. That is his design for you. Matthew 16, verses 16 through 19. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, the God who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Who's, what's he talking about there? What's he gonna build his church on? Not Peter, but on the fact that he is Jesus Christ. Let's not confuse those two. Now, Peter's name sounded a lot like rock there in the Greek, but he's saying, on the truth that I am the Christ, the living God. That's the foundation of my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice what he says in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind in earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You're like, man, yeah. I'll tell you what I wanna bind is sickness and pain. Here's what, here's what he's saying. I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit and I want you to live in the way that I have lived. Heaven has come down to earth. He's saying, go live like me. You have my same power. Live the way that I have lived. The way that we're gonna live together one day in heaven. Love the way that I have loved. Your greatest need is for the presence of Christ. Daniel here is most desperate as we should be for the love of Christ to be made known through us. And friend, because of the presence of Christ, we have the opportunity to love others in the face of depression, in the face of despair, in the face of lack, in the face of rejection, in the face of loss, in the face of mourning, in the face of guilt and of shame, we have the opportunity and the power to love others in the same way that Christ has loved us. This invitation is not into a better life. I'm not saying whatever you're most desperate for, it's gonna be bound and on earth as it is in heaven, it's gonna be loose, no. What you are most desperate for is the love of Christ. And it is made possible by his spirit. So the invitation is onto a better life, but the invitation is into life. You see, we have Daniel here, who is a conquered Hebrew prisoner of war. And he is made to stand before the ruler of the earth and he is faced with his execution. It's but a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. One day, who's gonna stand before the rulers of the earth? Who's not just faced with his execution, but he is put to death. The wrath of the father is poured out on him, on the good father who is in heaven. That's his plan. And it was brought to fruition so that we could walk in life, so that we could experience his love, so that we could be accepted by him, bringing all that we are. And so I would plead with you, I would invite you into a resurrected, spirit-filled life this morning. That's the only way that we can live with purpose, that we can love and serve others in the days and hopefully the years that we have left in this fading kingdom as we look forward to a final kingdom. Jesus Christ was broken for those who are in his kingdom. And if you are not in his kingdom, you will be broken. Those are the two options. We celebrate this meal of communion. It represents his body that was broken for us 
So this meal is for those who have placed their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. We dip it into the juice, which represents his blood, his righteousness, which covers us. This is where life is found, is in the presence of Christ. This is where hope is found, is in participating in this together. And my prayer for us is that even as we partake of this communion, that we wouldn't just walk out of here and, oh, that was something good, but that we would be reminded that we have the presence of Christ with us. We have his power. We have his life and his love with us. This week, as we go to our nine to fives, as we live in a home with unbelievers, as our spouse is angry with us, as our kids won't obey perfectly. May we be loving and serving those in the same way that we've been loved and served. So let's remember the sacrifice of Christ. Let's respond in faith, even for the first time to what he has done for us. His grace is sufficient. His mercy is never ending. This meal is for those who have placed their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ, who are in good standing. As we do this, let's repent and let's rejoice that we have a final kingdom to look forward to. South Point, you're invited to join me.